O Lord, our great and gracious God, who has sent your love upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whom we have confidence to draw near unto the throne of grace and call you Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this event for which so many have prayed and labored to bring about. And yet, O Lord, we know that it is you and you alone who deserve all the glory and honor and praise that we have brought us to this place. And so we pray that you would inhabit the praise of your people, that you would confirm your will to our hearts, and that we would go from this place joyful. Hear our prayer as we make it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is my great privilege to introduce to you Pastor Joel Fick from Redemption Presbyterian Church in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, We were just reminiscing how he and I both came into the presbytery at the same meeting some years ago. And one of my dear friends, uh, although that friendship will be tested over the next three weeks, we'll have to spend with one another uh, in June. So please uh, welcome as uh, we hear the word of God preached from uh, from Mr. Joel Fick. Warren, you're very kind. I, I almost got elevated to a doctor there for a second. It sounded like no one's ever made that mistake before. Well, it is a great honor to be here with you this evening and to bring God's word to you on this wonderful occasion. And so let me begin by just asking you to turn with me in your copy of God's word uh, to Ephesians and to the fourth chapter as we prepare to read the word of the Lord together, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm really just going to be preaching on one verse, uh, verse 8, but we're going to read verses 1 through 16. And would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Uh, this is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 26 asks the question, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? And it gives this wonderfully biblical, succinct answer. It says that Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, uh, in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. I want you to think about those verbs for a moment. Subduing, ruling, defending, restraining, conquering. As we think about what it is that a king does in his office, those verbs lead us in a definite direction. I think we often associate kings with ruling, with their task of governing and leading, Uh, But the Catechism's answer lays this particular emphasis on another aspect of his kingship. It has ruling, but it also has subduing, defending, restraining, conquering. Uh, It draws our attention to the fact that, biblically speaking, kings were, above all else, warriors. (laughs) Kings were those who went out leading their people into battle. Kings were those who subdued, who restrained, who conquered enemies. Uh, That is, of course, why King Saul was so attractive to the people of Israel. It wasn't just because he was handsome, as the Bible says that he was, but that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was somebody that they believed they could follow into battle. Remember how much larger his armor was when David tried to put it on. Man looked at the outward appearance, and when they looked at the outward appearance, they saw a warrior. Uh, That answer of the catechism marvelously reflects uh, this, this very familiar theme in Scripture. Think of the Psalms, for example. Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted uh, passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. The Lord Sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. I hear in this messianic psalm, the one who ascends to sit at Yahweh's right hand until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. And those who are God's enemies are made the subjects of his rule. He rules in the midst of them and they offer themselves freely on the day of his power. Or think of another psalm, which highlights this subduing, conquering power of God. Perhaps it's less known to us, but not less important. It's Psalm 68. And it's the psalm that Paul quotes here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Uh, In Psalm 68, I don't have time to preach on that whole psalm, of course, but let me just sketch the outline 
for you of what is going on in Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, uh, it's a poetic reflection upon David's defeat of the Jebusites and his victorious ascent up Mount Zion. You can read the historical accounts of that uh, in 2 Samuel 5 and also in 1 Chronicles 11. As David goes up in victory and takes over Jerusalem, and from there the throne is going to be established. But as Psalm 68 recounts those historical events, it does not do it in narrative form, but it does it in poetic form. And the interesting thing about Psalm 68 is that it recounts not what David is doing, but what God is doing in that same event. And in this account, God is presented to us as a warrior, as the king of his people who is triumphantly marching with a parade of his defeated enemies behind him as he goes to take up his throne, his ark, in Jerusalem. So the psalm begins... God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him will flee before him. Uh, He is the God who marches from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, O God, when you went up before your people and you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And he's the God who conquered and ascended the mountain in royal procession. This is from what Paul quotes. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men, even the rebellious. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary with singers in front, musicians last, and between them virgins playing tambourines. Uh, It is the description of a parade, (laughs) of a victory parade. You see, in the ancient world, when a king had conquered his enemies, it was customary for him to ride up that conquered city in great procession. Uh, It was a ceremonial victory parade. And in these parades, the king would go and uh, together with his armed forces and behind them would come the prisoners of war in chains and humiliation and shame. He would lead a host of captives. These captives were the prisoners of war forced into subjection and to the service of their new king. That is the description that Psalm 68 gives us, that God is going up the mountain, that God has conquered, and that God has in his train all of his conquered enemies. They belong to him, including their very lives. That is the picture of Psalm 68, and that is the picture behind Ephesians 4. When Paul says he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So as we look at Ephesians 4.8, I want you to just sort of feel the weight of this picture, the weight of what Christ has done, and to, to understand a little bit its implications for what we're doing here tonight. Its implications for Kevin. And its implications for you who are the members of this church. Uh, and so just as we, as we look at this verse, let me just draw your attention to three things. The introduction was the longest part of the sermon, I promise. <laughs> uh, three, let me point you, point you to three things. First, the Christ 
who ascends. Secondly, the Christ who leads captives. And finally, the Christ who gives gifts. And as we think about this, let me just remind you that Christ, right, is not Jesus' last name. It is a messianic kingly title. He's the anointed king. So literally, this is the king who ascends. This is the king who leads captives, the king who gives gifts. Um, Understand that at the outset, as Paul looks at Yahweh's ascent up Mount Zion, he sees that it is prophetic of the work of Jesus Christ. He clearly reads Psalm 68 Christologically. Uh, The ascent of King David and Yahweh up Mount Jerusalem pictured the ascent of a greater king, of David up Mount Zion, a greater mountain. It pictured the ascent of Christ into heaven itself. As uh, verse 10 tells us, he ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Uh, It's the same thing Paul said in Ephesians 1 when he ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places where he's given the name that is above every other name, verse 21, where he subdues and fills all creation, 122. The throne of Jerusalem was a picture of a heavenly throne to which Jesus Christ would ascend in victory. But it also tells us something about the nature of his victory and how he accomplishes it. Paul says that in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? You see, the victory and the ascension of Christ did not come by the power of the sword, but by the power of a cross. And this descent here refers to his humiliation to his incarnation, his life of suffering, his painful death on the cross, to his being buried and his descending into the grave, to all of those things we confess in the Apostles' Creed. The language of the lowest parts of the earth is a euphemism for his death. And the way of victory for Christ is through the cross. Paul could not make that more clear in Colossians 2 when he says that having forgiven us all of our trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside by nailing it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. The king triumphs over his enemies And it's on that basis of his victory through suffering that Paul says uh, that because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Christ had to descend before he could ascend. And having descended into the fray, into the battle, and having accomplished and won the victory, he ascended far above all the heavens. He is the king who ascends. But he's also the king who leads captives. When he ascends, what does he do? Uh, As the uh, New American Standard Version has it, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Now, who are these captives? Who are these defeated enemies? Well, on the one hand, of course, as Colossians tells us, they're the enemies of Christ. Satan, sin, death, 
They're the rulers and the authorities which he's put to shame uh, through his triumph in the cross. Uh, But as the Catechism tells us, uh, he conquers all his and our enemies, but the Catechism also helps us to see another aspect of this conquering. The very first thing the Catechism says is that Christ executes the office of, of a king in subduing us to himself. We were among the enemies of Christ. We are those whom Christ must subdue and defeat and change our wills and make us ready to follow him. And so while Ephesians 4.8 is undoubtedly a reference to the enemies of Christ, it's important to see that we are counted among those enemies. We who, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, once walked according to the course of this world, who followed the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. But we have been made alive together with Christ. And so we ourselves are part of that host of captives. We are those who are, who are being in his train, led on parade up the mountain. We are those who've been conquered. We were once rebels, but have had that rebellion quelled, have had our wills subdued. And let me submit to you that that is exactly the way Paul sees himself. I want you to look at the very first verse of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, of course, Paul is actually a prisoner. He's actually in chains. But as he draws Psalm 68 together here, he sees himself as another sort of prisoner. He sees himself as a conquered prisoner following in the train of Christ in his procession. Paul understands and feels himself along with his flock to be among that host of captives that Jesus has been leading. He's the one who ascends. He's the one who takes captives. But he is also the one who gives gifts. Uh, Paul, as he considers here the various parts of the body of Christ and the various gifts he's bestowed, he tells us in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is to say that each member of the body of Christ has gifts according to what Christ has himself apportioned and measured out. And and again, I think we're meant to think of a king who who has conquered and plundered his enemy, and now he distributes that plunder as he sees fit, as he wills. He gives gifts to men. But here in Ephesians 4, the gifts that he gives are men. They are the very men who he has conquered. We read in verse 11, he gave the apostles, and he gave the prophets, and he gave the evangelists, and the pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He's given gifts to his church to the end that the church might grow up in maturity, that the church might be united in faith and begin to look more like Jesus, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that is a marvelous and humbling point, that the gifts that Jesus gives to his church are his own captive prisoners. And I would submit to you that that has marvelous implications 
for what is going on here today. Uh, it has implications for you, Kevin. It has implications for you, my brothers in the presbytery, and for you elders and deacons of this church. Let me remind you that in your gifting, you are the prisoners of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so that should be both an encouragement to you and a charge to you. Uh, Because as an encouragement to you, it should remind you that Christ has subdued you to himself. That he has conquered you. He's conquered your heart. He's enlightened your mind. He's renewed your will. And he's done so at great cost. He ascends only because he descends. And he descended for us to lay down his life for us so that he might destroy our enemies and silence our accuser and destroy death. To be a prisoner of Christ and to follow in his train is not our great shame like it was in the ancient parades. It is our greatest honor to be the servants of Christ, to be prisoners for him. And this fact that you are a prisoner of Christ should also be a charge to you. A charge that you should remember that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. That it is not your rule that you impose upon God's people. It is the rule of Jesus Christ. Uh, That you are doing his bidding. You are the servant of a master And so you do no more or no less than he commands in his word. Your authority, Kevin, will be ministerial and declarative only. Uh, You do not forgive sins. He forgives sins. But you declare that he forgives sins. And you minister his word to his people. And as a prisoner, you must be mindful that you are a prisoner among other prisoners, caught up in the train of Christ. Biblical leadership does not exalt itself. It stoops to serve. And as you lead and as you serve, you remember that a servant is not above his master. Jesus is the model leader, the model model ruler who descends before he ascends, who humbles himself before he's exalted. Psalm 68, what does it say about Yahweh? He's the father of the fatherless. He's the protector of the widow. That is who God is in his holy habitation. It is the rule and compassion of Christ himself that is to be evidenced in your life. You're his prisoner. You're conquered by him so that you might offer yourself freely in this day of his power. And let me just say something about its implications for you, the church, especially for those of you who are members of Pineville Presbyterian Church. Today, God is giving you a gift. Jesus is giving you a gift. He has wrapped up Kevin with a bow. And he is handing him to you. And this man is precious to him. And you are precious to him. And it's because you're precious to him that he gives you this gift. So that you might be built up in him. That you might grow up in Christ that you might not be tossed about by every wave of doctrine, as Ephesians says, that you might grow into the fullness of the stature of who Jesus is.
to a mature man. It's because he leads you and protects you as a king, because he loves you and disciplines you as a father, because he pursues you and feeds you as a shepherd, that he gives you a pastor. You might read the book of church order. Those are all the things a pastor does. This man is a gift to you, and so I want to encourage you to receive him as a gift from Jesus. He is not your headache or your hiccup. He's not your problem or your predicament. He is Jesus' own gift to you. He is a gift that has been given to you so that you might grow up together with him into the fullness of the stature of Christ. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way uh, in which it points us to the final finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, uh, who descended for our sake and for our salvation and then ascended into heaven, having accomplished that work. And even as he ascended uh, with uh, leading a host of captives in his train, he gave gifts to men. And among those gifts, Lord, you are giving to your church this day, our brother Olivier. And Lord, we pray that you would use his gifts and his graces for the building up of this body uh, into a mature man in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, be glorified in his work. Be glorified in the life and the unity of Pineville Presbyterian Church. Be glorified as your name is exalted, the great giver of all gifts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond together in song, singing 98C, sing a new song to Jehovah, 98C. At the beginning of our time this evening, I introduced myself as a minister at Covenant in Natchitoches. I'm also the moderator of the Presbytery of the South, the Presbytery under which this church belongs. And uh, we are here met in part as uh, that presbytery body. This is, in essence, a meeting of the Presbytery of the South to ordain and to install Kevin as the minister here at Pineville Presbyterian Church. Uh, Kevin has sustained all of his exams before the presbytery. Uh, They were onerous and lengthy to make sure that he uh, knew everything that Uh, He needed to know in order to be a minister of the gospel. Uh, The presbytery at its meeting on April 1st, don't be confused by that name that we were doing anything funny. Uh, It just happened to be that day that uh, Kevin sustained his licensure exam uh, with no opposition, and he was determined, the presbytery determined, to take him uh, as a minister and to approve Uh, your call of him as Minister of the Word here uh, at at Pineville. Uh, As we are met as the presbytery, we are to do things according to the Book of Church Order of the denomination, which uh, calls us to make this proclamation. The Word of God clearly teaches that the office of minister was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul declares that our Lord gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, 
for the work of ministering and to the building up of the body of Christ. The duties of the minister of Christ may be briefly set forth under the following heads, the faithful exposition of the word of God and its application to the needs of the hearers in order that the unconverted may be reconciled to God and that the saints may be built up in their most holy faith. Secondly, the offering of prayer to the Lord on behalf of the congregation. Thirdly, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And finally, the exercise in conjunction with the ruling elders of the government and discipline of the church. The office of minister is first in the church for dignity and for usefulness, for by our God's sovereign design, the ministry of the word is the primary instrument in our Lord's gathering and perfecting of his church. The person who fills this office is designated in scripture by different names, expressive of his various duties. As he has the oversight of the flock of of Christ, he is termed bishop. As he feeds them with spiritual food, he is called pastor and teacher. As he serves Christ in his church, he is termed minister. As it is his duty to be grave and prudent, an example to the flock, and to govern well in the house of God, he is termed presbyter and elder. As he is sent to declare the will of God to sinners and to beseech them to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, he is termed ambassador. As he is commanded to warn the house of Israel against the enemies of God and his word, he is termed watchman. As he dispenses the manifold grace of God and the ordinances instituted by Christ, he is termed steward of the mysteries of God. Kevin comes to be your minister, and you as a congregation in your call to him have covenanted with him to certain duties that you are solemnly uh, to perform towards him in enabling him to do that which God has given him for you to do, and that is to be the gift of God for you. And so we have gathered together solemnly to witness Kevin's ordination, to see him installed, and to hear him confess and vow to the church and to God, and to hear the church vow regarding what duties it undertakes when it takes Kevin to be minister. This time I'll ask Kevin to step forward, please. Kevin, I will propose these questions to you from our form of government. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine contained in scripture? I do. Do you approve of the government and discipline and worship of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? I do. Do you promise objection to your brethren in the Lord? I do. Have you been induced as far as you know your own heart to seek the office of the holy ministry from love of God and a sincere desire to promote his glory and the gospel of his son? Yes. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity, the peace, and the unity of the church 
whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. Yes, I do promise. Do you promise to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all private and personal duties which become you as a Christian and a minister of the gospel, as well as in all the duties of your office, endeavoring to adorn the profession of the gospel by your life and walking with exemplary piety before the flock over which God shall make you overseer? Yes, I do. Are you now willing to take the charge of this congregation in agreement with your declaration when you accepted their call, and do you promise to discharge the duties of a pastor to them as God shall give you strength? Yes, I do. To the congregation, I ask these questions. Do you, the people of this congregation, to continue to profess your readiness to receive Kevin Olivier, whom you have called to be your pastor? Please answer by raising your right hand. Thank you. Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due exercise of discipline? Please answer by raising your right hand. Thank you. Do you promise to encourage him in his arduous labor and to assist his endeavors for your instruction and spiritual edification? Please answer by raising your right hand. Thank you. And do you promise to continue to him while he is your pastor, that worldly maintenance which you have promised, and whatever else you may see needful for the honor of religion and his comfort among you? Please answer by raising your right hand. Thank you. At this time, I'll ask Kevin to kneel and the members of Presbytery and elders of the OPC to gather for the laying on of hands. This time, uh, I will charge, issue the charge to the pastor. Kevin, I have, as I charge you, as is instructed upon us in our book, in our form of government, I don't have a lot of words of wisdom. Instead, I rely upon the words of Scripture. Paul wrote to Timothy the words of this charge, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministries. What more can I add to that which Paul writes? Serve the church, not for money, not for fame, not for peace, but for the glory of God and the reality of judgment of Jesus Christ. Serve in the certainty that Jesus is growing his kingdom. As you serve, preach faithfully. Use doctrine and use patience. Preaching is a trial to patience, for the path of sanctification is long and hard. And as God has patience with your growth and grace, so have patience with others. But never forget the importance of doctrine. 
Paul said that the days are soon coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, and we find ourselves in those days today. People want teachers that turn their ears from the truth. The Lord has hardened the hearts of the wicked and stopped their ears to the gospel, as he promised to do in Isaiah. Yet he also opens the ears of his people, and he gives them willing hearts. Preach doctrine for God's people, for those that he has called to himself in Christ Jesus. Paul also warns Timothy to guard his heart. Watch your heart, Kevin, for the devil will assault you. He will try to isolate you from the Lord, from his word, and from your congregation, and from your brother ministers. Don't let him. Spend time with the Lord apart from your work. Spend time in the word separate from your studies. Be honest with your congregation. Build and maintain friendships with your co-laborers in Christ, for by this you keep your heart, of which some have made shipwreck. Endure afflictions, for this world is in heaven, but endure them in hope, for the Lord who promised us blessings in heaven is still working and blessing his people today. Continue in the work of evangelism that we have already seen in you, I commend you for this, and I envy you a little bit in it, and I charge you to continue in it. Finally, finish your ministry well. The judge of all the earth sees all that you do and will reward you. Don't expect a full reward upon, for your labor upon earth. Rather, be encouraged that God sees your good works as he sees you clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the righteous judge is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Live and serve in the glorious hope. Amen. You may be seated. This time, it's my privilege to invite the Reverend David Chilton, the Regional Home Ministry of the Presbytery of the South, to come and charge the congregation. Well, it is my privilege and pleasure to bring a charge to this congregation that I've come to know so well over a period of years and for which I have great affection. And because I have great affection for you, my, my remarks will be brief. Uh, <laughs> let's look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held an honor among all, and and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge." Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, 
For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now these words at the end of the book of Hebrews come after what is possibly the greatest and densest portion of biblical theology to be found in all of Scripture. And yet, as high and deep as some of those words are, these words are simple exhortations, and they make for an appropriate charge to every congregation on every occasion, I would say, and even to every individual every individual Christian, as they cover important points of conduct across a number of areas of the Christian life. They, there is this exhortation that starts with to let brotherly love continue. And then we are told to show hospitality to strangers. We're also instructed to let marriage be held in honor and to avoid sexual immorality. And that we are asked to avoid the love of money. As it is pointed out here, it is a practical renunciation of our faith in God's providence to love money above him. But it is this last exhortation I want to focus on here, where we are told to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And while all of these things are a great reminder to Christians at all times, I want to focus for a moment on this last exhortation to you on this occasion of Kevin's installation and ordination. Because you've come to know Kevin well over these last couple of years. They have been difficult years for all of you and Kevin has been there going through difficulty with you right alongside you. Kevin in order to get to this point today has worked very hard and he has presented himself approved before all of his peers in the presbytery and has been a great encouragement to that group in the demonstration of his hard work. Kevin has been devoted to this congregation, and over the course of these last two years, I think I can testify truly, has only grown in his affection for all of you. And I think all of you know that Kevin has also, during this period of time, along with his family, endured serious hardship and difficulty and hard providence from the hand of the Lord. And yet he has come through all of this without grumbling or complaining, but has focused on God and has been before you an example of those who suffers. In fact, much like the example that the writer of Hebrews gives us in the immediately preceding chapter, where he tells us to consider him, that is Jesus, 
who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Kevin is not perfect. You will never call a perfect pastor to this pulpit. But Kevin loves the Lord. Kevin imitates the Lord in his enduring of hardships. And Kevin, as it is said here, has brought to you this word of God, this word of life through his scriptures. And he is approved as one who is competent and well-trained to do so. And so it is with your confidence as you have this evening proclaimed once again your willingness to serve under Kevin's rule as it were. Kevin's rule will be like that of the rule that we all serve under, Christ, gentle, where he tells us to take his yoke upon us for he is gentle and humble of heart. Kevin is gentle and humble of heart. And I believe he will lead you well. And so, as you have grown familiar with him over these past two years, do not allow that familiarity to be the seedbed of any contempt that you might have for Kevin. But show him the respect, the honor that he is due, that he has earned. And do so with the confidence that he will lead you to that Savior who suffered just as Kevin himself has suffered. You have the prospect of a very bright future before you as a congregation. And so I commend Kevin's leadership to you and that of your elders and ask that you continue to follow after them as you seek to follow after your Savior. It's my privilege as moderator to declare that Kevin Olivier is ordained as a minister of the Word of God and pastor of the congregation of Pineville Presbyterian Church. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, as we come to the end of this time, we do so with full hearts, with great thanksgiving, that you have done this work for us, that you have blessed us beyond measure. And we pray that you would commit us to your service, that as we depart from here, it is only the beginning, beginning of a new chapter in the life of Pineville Presbyterian Church and their new pastor, Kevin. We pray that you would bless us all for your name's sake. Amen. Take your hymnals and turn to hymn 446. Hymn 446, Be Thou My Vision, let us stand together as we sing hymn 446.
receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance unto you and give you peace. Amen.